Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the 12 by 12 Picture Book Writing Challenge. This month, I'm excited to welcome our newest sponsor, 12 by 12. Picture book authors need to be fairly prolific to be published. That's why members of 12 by 12 aim to write one picture book draft a month. Through an online forum, monthly webinars, a private Facebook group, and more, members enjoy the accountability, support, and motivation of a fantastic community of authors and illustrators. Registration is only open in January and February. Visit 12by12challenge.com slash membership for more information. That's 12x12challenge.com slash membership. Support also comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. Yeah, but kids are kids are so cool. They are. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I would much rather, you know, this this conversation separate, I would much, much rather present to kids than to grown-ups. Oh, I say that all the time, uh, too. I'm glad you say that. That's good to hear that. Well, because, uh, you know, at, at least to a certain age, they don't really have a lot of uh, ulterior motives. You know, they're not they're not trying to trip you up. No. And uh, you know that's it's when I do school talks, it's just the best thing in the world because it it feels like an amazing conversation with kids, and you you sort of know where they are, and uh, you hope that they know where you are, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. So. <laughs> Why is it that we tend to default to the masculine pronoun when referring to large animals or animals typically thought of as threatening? This was one of the questions my guest considered while making the art for his newest picture books. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 484. I'm your host, Matthew Winner, and today I'm joined by Brian Lees. Brian shares two books with us today. In Got to Get to Bears, Chipmunk receives an urgent notice from her friend and sets out in a blizzard against all odds in order to get to Bear's home. Izzy, the chipmunk, is the kind of friend every one of us wants to have in our life, and the kind of friend I think we all hope to be to someone in our life. In the rough patch, a male fox laments the loss of his dog, and in his pain and suffering, first lets his beloved garden go, and then decides in his anger and sadness that he's going to make his garden the saddest and most desolate place he can. And soon, it is. 
Ryan shares that he uses animals to make a story more universal to all of his readers. And for one very special reader in our household, these books showed a glimpse of life that made him curious and reflective and hopeful. Please welcome my guest, Brian Lees, author, illustrator of Got to Get to Bears and The Rough Patch. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is Brian Lees. I know it's spelled like lies, but my last name came from the country called Luxembourg, and it's pronounced Lees. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. And if you know my work, you probably know me because of my bat books. Uh, bats at the Beach, Bats at the Library, Bats at the Ball Game, and Bats in the Band. Or my two most recent books, uh, The Rough Patch and Got to Get to Bears. Ooh, Brian, I know you from a lot of things, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk. I know you from, let's see, I know you from more. Wow, mm. that book is phenomenal. Um, oh, I know you, you from, um, I believe it's called, I don't think you wrote it. I think it's called Deep in the Swamp. To illustrate yep. Deep in the Swamp, oh. a book, I'm trying to think of all the books that I've read either over and over in my library to students or with my son and now my daughter. Uh there's actually, as we get into talking about your books, um, I would be honored to be able to share my experience reading, in particular, The Rough Patch with my son, or rather him reading it, him and I reading it to our, to uh, my three-year-old. But um, mm. you do exquisite work, and I have to say, like, no one draws animals the way that you draw animal most of your books feature animal characters is that fair to say uh, absolutely i've done a couple of books fairly early on in my career that had people in them but uh i feel much more uh, comfortable in in the anthropomorphic animal world why is that do, do you have you drawn animals as a kid are you like just into i mean you live up north you have cool animals by you yeah, we have a we have a, a fox in the woods next to us, which is kind of cool. It's neat to be able to say, "I saw the fox" rather than "I saw a fox." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I've always been interested in drawing animals, and for me, one of the real reasons that I like doing animals in my books rather than people is because it makes a story somewhat more universal. Um, we may be jumping ahead a little bit to talk about the rough patch, but uh, when I first wrote the story, it's about a, a gardener who has a pet fox. And when I first conceived the character Evan, uh, who is the main character of the story, he was actually sort of an older New Englander. So he's an old man wearing a bill cap and overalls. And I was having difficulties visually with it and realized that my, my main problem with it was that there were going to be very, very few, few children who were going to run over to a book in a library with somebody who looked like their grandfather on the cover and say, let's read this book about the old guy. And if you have it a fox, nobody says that doesn't look like me. Because it doesn't look like anybody. So that what that really does is it frees you up in terms of uh, ethnicity and culture. Anybody could be the fox. Anybody could be an elephant. Anybody could be uh, a wildebeest. And so it's really much more about human nature. I mean, it worked with Aesop, and I think it's, it works in children's books. The Rough Patch is exquisitely beautiful. It's a story oh, of... Thank you. Yeah, it's a story of loss. It's a story of loving your dog. It's a story of what those those animals in our lives 
are to us and how they are in that way irreplaceable um but yet also how we find a way to to go on to keep on or um (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe in more destructive ways to move ahead but i as i read this with my son there were a, a couple things that we noticed together that i wanted to share um and one of the things he kept talking about over and over if i jump ahead um evan so evan has this dog and and they do everything together and and his dog passes right um he doesn't know how to move on but that moment when we see something awful happen you do this i think i think i counted twice in the book i might be wrong but there are most of the pages are just like full, what do you call it? Like a full bleed illustration where it just like fills the whole page. Mm-hmm, exactly. That, that's a term for it. Is that? Yeah. It's so, yeah, full bleed. So it's, it's like our, our nose is just right in this beautiful painting, but on the page where, where Evan's dog passes, it's just white alongside one side of the page. The left page says, but one day the unthinkable happened. And as our eyes trace over to the right side, uh, it's just Evan crouched over the the the, the bed, and um, and it's it's devastating. And as I as I realize that you've you've not only left us with just Evan and his dog, but you've 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 literally just left us with Evan and his dog and us. We are just there in that moment together there's nothing else it's only that and the way your art speaks in that moment was it it was disarming oh well thank you uh you know i apologize to anybody who uh cried or teared up at that page but um to me that is that is my favorite piece in the book um and having no background in that to me really focused our our attention on the emotion of the moment. Uh, if you've ever had a moment in your life where you have a, just a, a complete shock out of the blue, uh, something that's devastating that happens, uh, sometimes you do have that tunnel focus where, where everything goes away except the face of the person who's telling you this. And uh, so it, it felt like a very true thing to me to, to strip away the background entirely and leave us just with Evan and this moment of, of resigned sadness as he realizes what's happened i love that literally yeah. and figuratively his garden his beloved garden that he and his dog love to spend time in together <laughs> that he destroys it it's almost if i can't have this one beautiful thing in my life i don't want anything beautiful in my life i will tear it down and as he does and as he ignores the weeds start to take over but i found it so fascinating that uh, instead of just sort of letting everything go and letting it just be this weed-infested nightmare of a place, he actually tends to the weed to make yeah. it. I'm gonna find the words because this was if you didn't if you didn't like punch me in the gut from seeing his dog pass. Your line says, "If Evan's garden couldn't be a happy place, then it was going to be the saddest and most desolate spot he could make it." And then that page turn, and soon it was. 
Yeah. I, 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 I want to, before we go on, because I'm because there's too much for me to talk. We could do like four hours on this book, I'm telling you. <laughs> but before I go on, I want to stop and ask, where did this story come from for you, Brian? Did you meet Evan first? Did you have this experience come from you? Where, what, what, what piece of inspiration started this whole thing? Well, this, this book came from a slightly strange place. Uh, I think a lot of people would assume that it was from a, a personal grief experience. And, you know, you don't get to 55 years old without having your own share of personal grief, grief experiences. So uh, I, I know what that's like uh, in, in a variety of forms. But uh, this story actually started out with a little bit of reverse psychology. And it's uh, I was out in my garden weeding, and I've I've long been a vegetable gardener, and my cousin in Minnesota has an absolutely weed-free garden, and I asked him about how how he managed that, and he said that they'd weeded it so many years that they had depleted all of the weed seeds that were lying dormant in the soil, and I was wondering to myself as I weeded, how many more years am I going to have to do this before I have the weed-free garden? And then just had this perverse little thought, which was maybe I should apply reverse psychology to the garden. I'm, I'm planting seeds for carrots and Brussels sprouts and peas and things like that. And what the garden is giving me is weeds. So what happens if I actually transplant the weeds into beautiful even rows, water them, talk to them? What's the garden going to give me? Is it going to go, oh, no, you're not doing that to me. <laughs> And all of a sudden, between my beautiful rows of weeds, I'm going to start getting carrots, and I'm going to have to pretend that I'm that I'm disgusted with all of this produce that's coming up between the weeds. And I just liked the the kind of perverse quality of that that idea. And uh, uh, maybe people who garden feel that that way all the time. But uh, uh, I started thinking about that in terms of a, a story, in terms of a picture book. And you do have to explain why somebody would tend to weeds, and then the natural thing was just grief. And so, so it really fell into place in that way. And uh, this this book was marked by several little bursts of of activity. So I, I actually first came up with the story idea 14 years ago, and uh, wrote the whole thing down in a sketchbook. So it starts with um, a couple of pictures. Little uh, little pencil sketches that are maybe no more than an inch and a half wide of Evan with the dog and some of the things that they do together. And then I started adding a few words and then there were a couple more pictures and then more words. And all of a sudden it was a torrent of words with just a few pictures interlaced. And then suddenly it went back to pictures with only a few words. And uh, that was that was basically the story from start to finish, uh, really written down in, in one burst of activity. But then because of my misgivings about Evan being a human and, and kids uh, of a certain age uh, really reacting to or, or um, being interested in the emotional journey of somebody significantly older than them, I didn't really uh, try to uh, – carry through with it. So it sat in a sketchbook for a really long time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it was only when I sort of isolated that idea that my problem was Evan being human, that I had my second burst of activity in which uh, I first tried drawing him as a bear. 
And he didn't fit the sort of lanky New Englander mold that I had in my mind. He was big and clunky. And I tried drawing him as a rhinoceros, and he had a lot more facial character. He was much more interesting to look at, but he was also big and clunky. And I just saw uh, Evan as linear. And then I tried drawing him as a fox, and that, that one drawing that I did of him as a fox completely gelled the whole thing. That was Evan. Long fox ears, expressive fox eyes, uh, that long fox tail, which, like a dog's, could either be raised uh, at a time of happiness or joy, uh, drooping, dragging along the ground when he's, when he's in his, his worst pit after the passing of the dog. So uh, that was the second burst, and that was really what uh, made me realize that I, that I had to try to, to get it published at long last. I am so grateful that it took that form and went that way. I want to get to that that spot where I feel I had such a really beautiful moment with my son that I want to mm. call out in this book because he saw something that I didn't. Um, but first, um, <laughs> I love when I want to just share, I'm going to not spoil the book, but I want to share that... Um, as he's tending the weeds, he sees uh, a pumpkin plant start to to sprout out, and he sort of looks at the nasty characteristics of this like prickly stem and spidery tw- uh, tendrils. And twisty and he's tendrils. Like, he's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, this is this is my kind of plant." But what my son really <laughs> loved was that we see that on that shot, it's a shadow shot. We see Evan's feet, but we see the shadow of the hoe up in the air going to to chop it. And you do so many different like camera shots in this. It's so interesting to look at this book because uh, never is the camera position in the same place, but, but uh. I, he especially loved. And so do I that Evan's boots have holes cut out for his, his toenails for his claws. Well, it's, it's a purely practical thing. It's practical. If you're, if, That's right. If, if you're so a Fox good. and you're pulling boots on, you're going to wear through an awful lot of pairs. That's if you right. don't have boots with the holes already made in them. So, did so you draw Evan with, with no openings and then we're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. It would have like, I'm hearing your logic there and I fully (laughs) agree, but I have never seen someone make holes in shoes for the foxes. Like that makes perfect sense. Well, well that's to me, that's one of the really fun things about drawing animals. I mean, uh, you know, we humans have lots of different colors and sizes and shapes and that's wonderful. But in the animal world that, that breadth and width is so much broader and so much wider. Um, that I'm used to thinking about, okay, I draw a fox, what's his world going to be like? Uh, If he has an armchair, what does he do with his tail? Is he going to have to have a a chair that has an open side, like some of those old-fashioned sword chairs, so that somebody who's wearing a a sidearm, a sword, can sit down without that, that sword bumping against something? And so when I first drew those boots, uh, they already had the holes in them. There, there really was never any kind of question about that. It's well, a fox is going to have those holes. It's just <laughs> so that's awesome. So yeah. I wanted to share that in as the pumpkin grows, it gets to be gigantic, and he takes it to the fair, and it is like totally a a fair pumpkin, a giant pumpkin. But what my son pointed yeah. out that I now cannot unsee in this book, and I'm obsessed with it, is Uh-oh. that there's a scene when. Um, 
when um, Evan is hanging out with his friends. He's catching up with friends. The line says, he caught up with some friends too. It felt good to be out again, even if it wasn't quite the same. But my son said, Daddy, look, all the pumpkins are really big compared to the foxes, but it's because foxes are smaller than people are. The pumpkins are the right size. I was like, oh my word. I haven't heard anybody say that. That's great. Brian made the book to human scale with foxes, not foxes were human size. In your book, am I right to, to echo my son's observation that in your book, foxes are fox size? And pumpkins are pumpkin size. Uh, boy, I, I have to say, I haven't even thought about that. Uh, I, I love his thinking. I, it was awesome. Because I, yeah. <laughs> because I think it, it absolutely works. I mean, it's, you know, Evan, Evan at first for me had been a human being, so I had seen the whole thing on, on a human scale. But uh, I like that reading. I mean, that, to me, that's one of the real joys of sending a book out into the world because a story belongs to the readers, yeah. You know, you as an author create things with a certain th- something in mind. Uh, but as the author, you're not always the authority. You're not always right. Uh, you know what you meant as you did it, but uh, that could mean something completely different for, for all of the readers. And and that's probably the right reading. I love that. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm also grateful that I had a chance to tell you that from him, because that's that's a really neat thing. And just... That he, I mean, this is what readers do. You and I, before recording, we're talking about how working with children is just the greatest because of their capacity to give, to observe, mm-hmm. to love, to speak their truths. And it was just neat to have to have that. So I want to yeah. jump over to Gotta Get to Bears because I'm watching our time. And um, there's a big thing in this that I want to talk to you about because of uh, a recent blog post you shared uh, sure. on Fuse yes. Number 8 on Betsy Bird's blog that made me like sit up straight and think that, oh, have I ever even really considered um, what it means to gender animals? Yeah. Uh, but in this story, um, we, we, we go to a, a different environment, but one that I also really love, that the passage of time, the way that as we go from front to back of the book, the sun sets, the snow deepens as as we we start off with a, a chipmunk getting a note, Izzy getting this note, dear Izzy, please come at once from Bear, mm-hmm. and just a, a chipmunk setting out to find her friend and needing the help, as the cover also um, alludes to, needing the help of, of many, many others to get there, uh, not knowing what what task is there? Did I do a fair job book topping that? I'm just realizing oh, ab- like I'm book talking it right now. No, absolutely. Yeah. There's this mysterious un- unnamed call from bear. Uh, bear never asks for anything. So if she asks, uh, it must be important. And that's sort of the tease throughout the whole book is, is he going to bear is to figure out what it was that bear really needed in the first place. Is that but- sounds like a, uh, a- I mean, as as I'm hearing you say it, it sounds like you've unlocked the secret of of writing stories, which is that you just keep this one answer from the reader or from the character, and we allow the reader to watch and to guess along. But I love in this story that Izzy, there is no guessing. It's we have to get there. It's the mission, the the importance of being there for her friend is the mm-hmm. most is the driving force it's there's never a moment of like what if of worry of of doubt of 
of is bear important enough? Is bear's need important enough for me to go? And more importantly for us to see, to really face some really awful weather, the need is always the most important thing. And I feel like that message is so strong, but also to have this, this simple plot device of, I know something you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it works. It's so good. Oh, good. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, you know, I think I hope I hope we're all lucky enough to have a friend like that. Yeah. Uh, who you get a phone call or a text that says, "Can you come over?" and you don't even hesitate. You put down what you're doing. If you're in the middle of cooking a fancy six course meal, you shut the burners off and you go. And uh, so, so you're absolutely right. To me, that that friendship, that uh, uh, that unquestioning spirit, is is the driver of the story. And. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit because, uh, to me, and I don't know if other people read this way, the way, the way I wrote it, I wanted it to seem a little, that, that bear seemed a little imposing that there was almost a a hint, you know, she, she never asks for anything, but there may be some peril if you don't go. Uh, and I don't know if anybody else has read that into it. I do see that in the story. So, uh, whatever the, uh, thing is that uh, Bear wants in the end um, uh, should not be the thing that people expect as, as they go along. Well, you know, it, it, yeah. I, the fact that <laughs> the, every individual that, that Izzy runs into, all these different animals, first, that the note, as, I, as I've as i read it and reread it, I'm like, wow, that note is like really demanding. The only line is, please come at once, exclamation point. Like, goodness, you couldn't have given me anything, Bear? Exactly. <laughs> but, but then to have all the new characters affirm Izzy's mission, Izzy's drive, that, that um, the first character meets a squirrel, and, and on this page it says, Hey, Scritch said, where are you headed? I'm trying to get to Bear's place, Izzy said. She asked me to come as soon as I could, but I don't think I can make it. Scritch nodded. It looks a little deep, but you know how it is. If Bear asks, you gotta go. Jump on my back. We'll be there in a jiff. The treetop road is the way. I don't want to spoil the story. But after you get to the end, it's like, oh, of course you needed to help Izzy get there. Uh-huh. Yep. But it's just to play into to play into this notion of like if a friend asks, if a true friend asks when they don't normally ask, you gotta go. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Is also so true it's like a little white lie that it's not hurting izzy but it's also affirming a bigger truth mm-hmm. uh, yep it was quite well, a it's... wonderful conundrum of a book for me in that oh, i don't thanks. know if that's even the right word i just was like yep it's true i have to help my friend <laughs> well you know misdirection and the unexpected are are really essential parts in storytelling you ask any kid in a school uh you know if you if you could guess what's going to happen in the chapter you're reading and you're right and then you guess what's going to happen in the next chapter, and you were right. And you guess the ending, and you were right. How does that make you feel about the book? Bored. Yeah, makes and, me feel smarter than the author. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, why do we love you know mysteries? Uh, it's because we don't know how things happen, and we're you know desperately trying to figure it out, sort of ahead of the action in the story, and try to be as clever as the the writer was. 
Um, but I think we all love being teased. I think we all love being uh, led down the wrong path and surprised and startled by, by a different direction when we get there. Yeah. I'm going to get us to bears, as the title implies, because I want to talk about bear. But sure. I love the delivery of the like actual delivery of Izzy and company to bear's house. Because by the time we get to the door, the snow has piled so high that Izzy is able to look face to face, eyes to eyes with bear. And that image of just looking straight into the eyes of a bear and seeing Izzy uh, and Izzy's lantern reflected in bear's eyes and just seeing Mm -hmm. the, the glassiness or whatever the word is that almost looks like tears to me. I think, it's my emotion reading into it because this whole time I'm like, we have to get there. What I feel like I'm reading is, is affirming that like there was something bad and we have to be here for bear. Well, uh, well, bear is certainly disappointed by the time as he gets there. And, uh, we, we won't say why, <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, that, that, picture there does carry through with that whole concept of uh, a sense of urgency somehow with bear and we we first see her and as you say her eyes are large liquid and it's clear that she's upset but uh, the reason for her upset unfolds in a page or two (laughs) support for the children's book podcast comes from little feminist book club Little Feminist wants to help you diversify your child's bookshelf. Each month, they send one to two books featuring characters of underrepresented backgrounds. Little Feminist spends months consulting with a team of educators, librarians, and parents to pick each book and create a suite of hands-on activities to accompany them. Whether it's treasure hunts or DIY musical instruments, the goal of the included activities is to make the stories come alive for both children and families. Each box is built around one to two books of the month that feature strong female characters and or people of color. Go to littlefeminist.com and use the coupon code WINNER for $5 off when you order or click on the link at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast to get started today. Raise good humans one children's book at a time. And from Viz Media. Viz is excited to announce that Pokemon Adventures, the most popular and longest-running Pokemon comic, is now available digitally. Visit viz.com Pokemon to read a free preview of the beloved All Ages series. That's viz.com Pokemon. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about Bear. Yeah. I, I'll make sure that I link to that guest post that you wrote on... Um, on Betsy's uh, blog. I don't, I'm not trying to have you rehash the entire thing, but it brought up such an important conversation that I know that Betsy's brought up before and others as well uh, mm-hmm. in gendering animals and specifically what it, what choices of gendering animals can imply in their relation to other characters in the story. Do you want to talk a yeah. little bit about um, you, the the journey you went on with Bear and, and gendering Bear? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it, it, it sort of starts with something that most people do, and I hope that we will sort of learn our way out of, which is if three people are standing on a bridge and a fish swims by underneath, one of them is likely to say, oh, look at that fish go. What's he doing? 
And we tend to default automatically to the masculine pronoun, he, when we see animals out in the world, unless, unless it's a uh, species that, uh, in which the, the female and male look quite different. And when I was first writing this story, to me, this is purely a story about friendship. And that was foremost in it. It's what you would do for a friend and what a friend would do for you. When I first wrote this, Bear was male. And I was working on the final illustrations for the book, and I had been thinking about uh, gender in books. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of discussion going on right now about uh, uh, gender in general in our society and uh, uh, male privilege and white privilege and all of these things. And I, I do a lot of thinking while I'm doing my final paintings. And I was uh, working on the paintings for Got to Get to Bears, and it suddenly dawned on me that if Bear is male, the dynamic between Izzy and Bear could be read extremely differently from what I wanted. And some people could read that story as Izzy gets a note from a Izzy, a female, gets a note from her good friend Bear, who's male. The note doesn't say anything about what Bear, male, wants, but Izzy drops everything to fulfill the needs of him and goes off into the snow and, you know, she's got fur, so she could probably bury under, you know, dig her way under the snow and is probably not in any real personal peril. But I didn't like the idea of, uh, of female dropping everything for male just to answer some uh, undefined demand. And that had to go. Uh, so I talked with my editor, Kate O'Sullivan at, at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt about this. And we agreed that uh, the best solution would be to simply swap Bear's gender. So he became she. And as soon as Bear is a she, you lose that, that weirdness about this, this male's demand. And I know there are some people who, who say, oh, come on, you can't be reading all of that. It's animals. What are you talking about? This stuff matters. Yeah. You know, the, these little things, it's, it's very small. And all we did was, was add an S to the pronoun, and he became she. But to me, it really does change the essence of the story, and it removes any of those negative connotations or negative reads that somebody could, could read into it. You know, it made me think by reading that both of those things. First, the 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 waves of people that would say, "Who cares? It's just animals," or even worse, like the really degrading thing, "Who cares? It's just a book for kids." Um, exactly. Yeah. But also, what the way that likewise in these conversations that have been coming up, the way I have realized that I've been wired programmed uh to see myself in books and think that that the, that, that that that's the quote unquote right way to be mm -hmm. seeing things or that there's just things that you internalize that you don't realize you're internalizing but they imprint on you they mean something to you and so something as simple as a pronoun assignment of these two characters making the power dynamic a certain way Absolutely. Why wouldn't it impact a child? Why wouldn't a child pick pick up on that? Or maybe more importantly, yeah. if if you switch the pronouns or if you emphasize that bear is a she, maybe it will cause the reader to to 
perk up a little bit thinking, oh, well, usually when I read a bear, it's a male. Or, oh, usually <laughs> when I read a yep. whatever. And it'll just cause them to pay attention a little bit more or maybe remember oh. that situation a little bit more. So you're doing you're doing these things to awaken the senses yep. when you make those choices. And I think as you're reflecting too, that's such an important thing. And it's not, it's not something I often hear no. shared in uh, the, the writer's process. You were one of the first people that I heard come out saying like, Hey, I really want to address this publicly because I went through this and I was wrong and let's talk about well, it. Well, I have a, I have a funny uh, school talk story for you. Um, at the end of uh, my first bat book, bats at the beach, uh, we leave the book with uh, a scene at a beach. There's a lifeguard chair and there's one bat that I don't mention in the text hanging from the bottom of the chair when I present that book in schools, uh, I like to s- talk with kids about details in pictures and in words and why those are important to the story. And so I'll say, what do you think, you know, wh- some kid will raise a hand and say, look, there's a bat there. And I'll say, yes, there is. And that bat is there for a real person. Now, could that bat be the lifeguard bat? Uh, and then I'll say, could she be a bat who accidentally fell asleep? Could she be? And I'll almost always have a kid raise a hand and say, why did you say she? Which I find so fascinating because if I had said, why, you know, do you think he's the lifeguard bat? You're never going to have a child raise a hand and say, why did you say he? So to me, that's a, uh, that really is one of the things that sort of, uh, uh, opened my awareness about gender in children's books. The fact that, that, that kids are startled when you say she about a gender nonspecific animal. And, uh, so again, I, I just think it's really important that we do pay attention to this because kids, you know, their, their job is to, to watch and listen and learn. And if we're not doing it right, they're going to watch and listen and learn the wrong things. It's it's yeah. Stephen Sondheim. It's into the woods. Be careful <laughs> the things you say. Children will listen. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think too, so. you mentioned that, that sort of by default, we tend to call animals uh, using the male pronoun. But I also think just to call it out that often it's, it's a certain kind of animal. If an animal is seen as, you know, big, strong, menacing, uh, um, mysterious, whatever, then it's a he. Mm-hmm. Um, we put those those um, those adjectives, when we put those adjectives onto an animal, then we associate those adjectives as being masculine adjectives, or that's no. the way we were exposed to those adjectives as a child. And so that work that you're doing to, to unsettle, any of us, that work that we do to unsettle the way we refer to to animals, to, to things is, I mean, it's all important. It feels so weird to be saying this over and over <laughs> where I'm like, I know yeah. you get it. And I know most of the people listening are like, yeah, move on. You know this, but like, think about it. We work with children all the time and you say a thing in front of them, Brian, you go out and visit however many schools. And mm-hmm. each time you visit a school, there's a couple hundred kids. So you are, you may be the one author that that kid ever gets to meet. And yep. And so none of us can take lightly when you're in front of a child, no one can take lightly the role and responsibility you have and you play in front of that child. 
Oh, absolutely. It's uh, a single thing that you say or, or exposure of a child to some new concept can make a huge difference. Uh, I'm a children's book author today because of an author who came to my school when I was in fifth grade. Uh, I had never really realized that this was an actual job that real people did. They'd all seemed like, uh, you know, magical beings in a special art colony somewhere who handed <laughs> books down to us. And, you know, I was sitting in my school library uh, towards the back, probably because uh, I was not a kid who was raising his hand all that much in a large group, but I, uh, probably quietly listening, but blown away that this man had actually written and illustrated some of my favorite books when I was a little boy. And so what we say and what we do is important. It really is. Um, you know, it can make a tremendous difference. You, you, uh, I know there are a lot of other authors and illustrators who've, who've had similar experiences with uh, uh, an author visit, uh, sort of opening up a whole world of, of uh, creating stories as a, as a possibility for them. And, uh, you know, I think that, that any inadvertent comment you make in front of kids uh, might have power, either either to the positive or to the negative. Yeah. <laughs> so you always have to be awake and alert and aware. And uh, you know, that's kind of the magic of it, though, I think, is, is yeah. not knowing. Yeah. Uh, you know, most teachers, uh, unless you're lucky enough to have students come back to you years and years later uh, to tell you what their class meant to you, to them, uh, you don't really know. You're planting all these seeds and you know that it's going to have an effect, but you don't really know what that effect is going to be. That's kind of kind of sad in some ways and magical in others, but uh, I think the fact is that you are making a difference. Yeah, and you do it because of the moment that you're in. Uh, you don't do it because hopefully maybe there's a chance in 15 years they'll come back and say something to me yeah. or mention me when they accept their Academy Award or something exactly. ridiculous. Yeah. You do it because right yeah. now they need you to love them. I know we were talking well, about that earlier too. Yeah, and that and that moment when you when you have some kind of a concept that they haven't quite gotten and you rephrase it a different way and you see somebody's face completely light up, that that moment of I got this and it's yeah. cool. I mean that that to me is so magical. You know, the, to me that feels like handing on uh, you know the baton that I got from from that author who came to my school. Ooh, Brian, uh, I have a transition. You're gonna love this transition. Watch this oh, handoff. Um, okay. <laughs> One of our mutual friends on social media, as I was saying that I was getting ready to interview you, was like, ooh, speaking of children's faces lighting up, ooh, you need to talk to Brian about <laughs> how he knows how to floss. Ah. <laughs> uh, I said that can't be true. But uh, as you're sharing about um, I, well, children's faces I, I, lighting up, I love, that, and I love that that is a thing that it may be absolutely true. If not, I love that it's just <laughs> part of your lore. Well, as, as I tell kids in schools, I, I'll say to them, you know, it's easy to it's it's easy to write a bad story. It's very hard to write a story that you're deeply proud of. Um, it's easy to floss badly. Uh, I floss badly, but I learned a few years ago when I when I uh, some some kid yelled out to me in a class, dab and, and uh, totally shocked the entire class by dabbing and. It was so much fun that I figured, you know, with seeing so many kids now flossing, you got to be able to floss. Keep up on this. It's just fun. Why not make that little <laughs> connection? Is yeah. there 
but I'm watching our time. We're going to wrap up soon, but sure. in, <laughs> are there any other secrets of Brian Lee's that you want to tell me? No. Um, are there any, uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about with got to get to bears with the rough patch with, with any of your books that you wanted to make sure that you got to share on recording that you got to share with people listening before we head out. We will talk about our students, our children to end, but is there anything else before that? Well, I think one thing about uh, the rough patch for me is that uh, it's very easy to categorize it um, as as a book about pet loss, because in the book, Evan does lose his pet dog. Uh, to me, though, it's really uh, much more a story about hope after loss of any kind. And I think a lot of adults forget that children suffer so many different kinds of loss very early on. Uh, a friend moves away. And you may never see that friend again. Uh, you may move away, and then you're going to lose your yard, your house, and all those magical spaces that you used to crawl in and hide. And each one of those losses is, in some ways, a, a kind of a metaphorical form of death. And for young kids who've never been through loss before, uh, you know, they're bewildered. They don't know where to put it. Um, they don't know what to do with the anger that comes. And... Uh, I've been really surprised by the number of adults who have contacted me and said that they've shared the rough patch with other adults and that uh, they, they it really resonated with them. So to me, that's a marvelous thing. I mean, I would love to think that uh, a book that I do isn't something that you get into when you're three years old and at four years old, you're out of and you put it away forever. I would like to think that there might be something in it for, for that person as an eight-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 21-year-old. Um, yeah. So, you know, when, when uh, I've, had, I've seen bookstores that have actually labeled the rough patch pet loss, and uh, I think that really limits the, the focus of the thing. You're missing it, yeah. yeah. I, I, it, it already is so much more to, to me to... Uh, my son and I, and um, I'm just grateful that that it's a book that is is there. I mean, the work you're doing, Brian, is incredible. But oh, thank book, you. That book was. I'll say it this way before we before I send us to our readers. Um, <laughs> that book was one that very seldom do I read a picture book that I just didn't see coming. I often don't mm. know anything about the books that I read. But uh, like we were talking about being surprised as a reader, there just aren't often times when when I'm truly caught off guard. And that one, um, to have it center so much more for me on Evan and on what it means to feel like I was functioning. How do I function now? Mm. Um, it was very powerful. And that when a book when a book allows you to see something in yourself that way, uh, in whatever way it's allowed, it offers, it offers that opportunity to see yourself. It's a powerful thing. So thank you, Brian, not only for making that book, but for sharing your work with me, for sharing your, uh, your voice with me and your, your insight and, and, and all, all that you've brought to making stories for children. 
Oh, well, thank you so much for those kind words about the book. And uh, also, please thank your son for his insight on those pumpkins. I love that. As soon as we're <laughs> off here, I'm going back to the book to uh, to take a look at it. <laughs> well, for all of the many other children you will see in this coming year, um, I would love to close our conversation by giving you a chance to speak directly to them. And I will totally include my son in that group of children we're talking about. Okay. Um, <laughs> Brian, I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Yeah, I guess what I would really want to say to kids is, especially for kids who are struggling with reading, stick with it. You know, learning to read is one of the few things that only human beings do. So it makes it a, a very, very special thing for us. Um, you know, your your pet dog doesn't read. Uh, your pet dog could sit and watch TV as long as you can. Um, so so reading itself is is this really wonderful thing. And uh, to me, reading is this, you know, it's diving into a world beyond my own. So I can meet people from different cultures, different uh, times in history, uh, alien worlds. And what I would say to kids is just imagine never seeing what color looked like, that your entire world is in black and light, white, and then having somebody try to get you excited about what blue looks like. And for kids who struggle with reading, uh, I think sometimes they wonder what the point is. Uh, and like somebody is trying to explain what blue is. It's so amazing. This is so cool. You can disappear into another world. But when you finally see blue, you know, if you've practiced your reading and uh, you get to that moment where you open a book and your brain automatically translates those little squiggles into pictures and voices and characters that you laugh out loud with and you cry with, it's such magic. And you know, to me, reading is you know, the, the one experience of true magic in human life. And so I would say to those kids, it's my long way around saying, stick with it. Keep reading until you get to that point where you open that book and you can slip into the pages. This is Thirsh Nakiani, children's author and book blogger. Want to find out the latest South Asian books and children's literature? Check out www.flowering-minds.com forward slash South Asian Kidlet. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individual's and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out with the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Sarah, Kate, Lisa, Darshna, 
Marianne, Jarrett, Anitra, Mike, Lynn, Link, Corina, Cynthia, Elaine, Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.